Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight I'd like to talk about the quality of compassion and its relation or related qualities that create a spaciousness in the mind. How we can learn to open, how this practice develops an attitude of opening to our experience. Already, uh, This ability to open to our experience is really contrary to the response that we typically have to situations that we find ourselves in. Uh, Every moment of our experience, there is a a quality of, or a taste of pleasantness, or unpleasantness, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant neutrality. And this is um, not only out of the Buddha's teaching, but I think probably you can relate to this in your own experience today. There have been some some pleasant moments, probably some unpleasant moments, and some that weren't pleasant or unpleasant, they just were. Those flavors typically lead to responses of contraction when the situation is a pleasant one, what we often do is contract around it and want to incorporate it, want to hold on, keep it for ourselves, keep it here. When it's a difficult situation, we contract and keep it at a distance or strike out if it's... um, if it's something uh, that that touches our survival instincts. So the response of contraction is very, very deeply ingrained. When things are neutral, often after a little while, they turn into boring experiences. And so that becomes an unpleasant one. We contract from that too. Let's find something a bit more interesting. Have you had that urge today? The first day of a retreat usually brings up a bit more of the unpleasant for most people. Because not only is it difficult to pay attention, even to the raisin when it's something uh, quite sweet tasting, it's that much more difficult to pay attention when what you're noticing is pain in your body, or wandering in your mind, or strong emotions, or confusion. And there's the structure that tells you when to sit, and how to walk, and when to eat, and when to go to sleep. It's almost guaranteed to bring up resistance and aversion from that unpleasantness, that newness of the experience. And another... um, Part of this unpleasantness on the first day is that usually our energy is quite low. 
because it takes a while for us to tap into our own resource of energy. And so with that low energy, we become raw and sensitive in ways that we don't usually experience at home. So it's really a challenge. So I, I give you credit for still being here after 24 hours. It's not easy. And what we typically would like to do is find something else that's a bit more fun. You know, maybe Sufi dancing or uh, chanting or something that can be a little bit more entertainment. If you stay with this, you see that the practice very powerfully develops an ability to open more and more to experience whether it's unpleasant or pleasant or neutral. In the pleasant sense, we can open and not grasp, not try to hold on, because more and more we see the futility of holding on. That's what creates more pain. When things are hard, little by little there's a, a confidence and a, um, an understanding of the power of opening up and not contracting in fear, which simply compounds our predicament. Because there's the understanding that everything is coming and going. It, this is passing as well. No matter how um, strong the emotion, this goes too. No matter how strong the pain, it will change into something else. Sometimes another pain, but it changes. <clears throat> The capacity to open, to create a space with which we can explore our experience is crucial. Because if you try to dissect or go in and penetrate with a, a determined awareness without a spaciousness, without a softness, it gets very tight and very confusing. And there's a struggle that easily ensues from that kind of an attitude. The Buddha gave a, an example of um, taking a glass of water that has a lot of salt in it. And if you drink that kind of a, a glass, it will be very uh, distasteful. But if you put the same glass of water with all the salt in it into a pond and then take a glass of the water from the pond, you won't notice it. It won't be so much of a problem. If we can create a spaciousness of our experience in our minds, then the very difficult, niggling things that are, uh, that are hard to be with right now take on a bigger perspective. When I was a, a kid, I used to uh, be very enthralled by astronomy which was, I think, my first Dharma connection. I used to uh, drag my parents to the Hayden Planetarium whenever the, uh, uh, the show would change. I grew up in New York, so there weren't that many stars to see, but we'd go to the planetarium and say, wow, look at that. And just getting that sense of how vast the sky was, is, it really does something to your own particular melodrama. 
And so if you can have that kind of an attitude to seeing this very important thing in a, a huge perspective, it changes, it shifts things. Compassion, by definition, one definition is learning to open to the suffering that's experienced in ourselves and in others. Without that capacity to open, when we contract in response to the suffering, it takes on the tone of its near enemy, the near enemy of compassion. What disguises as compassion is pity. Oh, that's so terrible. Oof, but you don't want to touch it. You don't want to go too near it when you see somebody in some a hard spot or in a, in a condition that, that frightens you. True compassion is the ability to open up and let yourself be touched by that suffering so that there's a sense of connection, whether it's somebody outside or your own self, to feel compassion for all of those difficult places that are usually hard to touch. So I want to speak about some qualities of mind that are not only cultivated as we do the practice, but can consciously be incorporated into the meditation. That you can keep in mind, and when you see they're a bit lacking, to focus on and generate. And that will uh, deepen the ability to see clearly. The first, and I think probably the most essential is the quality of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the antidote to the complaining mind or to the, to the reaction of blaming ourself you know, for how lousy we're doing or blaming somebody near us. Boy, if only this person would stop coughing or would be a little quieter while we're sitting, then I could really do this right. Forgiveness, in this sense, is not kind of tolerating, well, okay, I'll kind of let it slide this time. But if I were running things, you know, I'd get the act more together but really a capacity to understand and let go and embrace. We have ample opportunity to practice forgiveness as we sit here together, first directed to our own experience. It's such a a common tendency that people have when they come to a retreat or they do the meditation to want to do it right, you know? And you have some ideas about what a good meditator would be like, either from the outside or from the inside. Oh, gee, they're going so slowly. I wish I could do it like that. You know, I can't. Or, boy, if I were doing this and, and being good at it, I wouldn't have any wandering in my mind. Or my body would just be pain-free. You know? If you've got a body, 
you're going to have some pain. That's just part of the package. But that pressure to meet some imagined expectation really complicates things. I mean, you are just doing what you are. And your body sometimes doesn't want to cooperate, or your mind wanders. That's what minds do. That's what bodies do. When you have that pressure on yourself to perform or to match your expectations, it complicates things. And I know from having a perfectionist streak within myself, it's something that I've dealt with over the years, when there's something that I really think I, I can do, I want to give it my all. Other things that I know that there's not a, a chance, then I'll just kind of let them slide. Okay. But what happens when I really put my heart and soul into it? And over the years, I've been a bit easier with myself. Uh, still have that little place inside that wants to do it perfectly. A number of years ago, it occurred to me that the best a perfectionist could do is break even. So you do it perfectly, okay, it was perfect that time, but what about the next? And anything less than perfect, and you've blown it. There's a, a beautiful line in the Third Zen Patriarch that says, to live in the realization of harmony, to live in peace, is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. That's the enlightened mind. Because in that letting go of the anxiety, you are just what is. And there is a full acceptance and acknowledgement of things as they are. If you don't forgive yourself, as one teacher put it, this meditation practice becomes one insult after another. (laughs) It's true. Have you gotten insulted a few times today? And so, a part of the process is letting ourselves make mistakes, just doing the best we can, and opening up and seeing that that's all we can do. You might have some kind of an image of an enlightened being. Just tell a story a number of years ago where a number of Zen masters were invited to welcome a visiting Zen master from from Asia. And someone was at this gathering, this party for, uh, for this master, and was saying, some of these great beings just oozed mindfulness in everything they did. You could see as they picked the cup up to their lips and as they spoke, and their whole demeanor was one of great precision and care. Some of these masters were just hanging out casually, didn't look any any different from you or me. And some of them were wildly cavorting around and practically swinging from the chandeliers and really letting it out. Who was the real Zen master? They all were. And so if you can let go of your image of what you're supposed to be like and see that the idea is you are a perfect expression of life in this form 
And the only responsibility that you need to take on is to be the most yourself of who you are. No one can be as good a you as you. And you can't be as good as somebody as somebody else. The way to bring forgiveness to your experience, when you see stuff that you're caught up in again and again and again, is to understand how deep the conditioning is, how deep the habits are that we're trying to unlearn or change. Experience that pointed this to me on a retreat a number of years ago, one of the three-month courses. I was walking downstairs in the in the gym, what's now, actually, it's not a walking room anymore. It's, maybe some of you are down there in the basement and there are some compartments. That was my treasured walking space for a number of years. This one time, I was all by myself. This is after about two months of sitting. And I was pretty quiet, pretty focused, and going quite slowly. Not because I was trying to, just because that's the gear that I found myself in. This one particular day, I wanted to play in a game to see how slowly I could go. Okay? And since nobody was around, I wouldn't have to feel self-conscious. I just really crawled like a snail. And in the middle of this exercise, somebody came into the, into the gym who had just come from the outside because there was a two-week retreat that was starting at this point in the uh, the end of the three-month course. That's how they used to do it um, in the early days. And you can feel somebody's energy when they come in from the outside after you've been sitting for a few months. And I knew this was going to look very bizarre to this person, but I wasn't going to stop my, my game. So I just continued crawling, crawling, crawling. And after about two minutes, this person just bolted out of the gym in what seemed to me frustration <clears throat> through the comparing mind. And as she went across my field of vision, the thought came to me, boy, I really blew her mind. She must think I am a great yogi. <laughs> and the thought registered really deeply. I couldn't pretend I didn't have it. You know? <laughs> And from this quiet, subtle place of equanimity, it just opened up to this trap door of competition and image and, and presentation and comparison. And it was like, oh, God, here I've been trying so hard and I'm right back where I started. And it went through from the slow walking to pacing back and forth like a tiger. You know? I can't get out of this mind. I can't get out of this mind. Which happened for a few minutes until finally just this understanding in a flash of how familiar that thought was. The reason I caught it was that I was quite focused, but there was this sense that I'd had that kind of a thought millions of times before of image and competition and presentation. And with that understanding, just this wave of compassion, my goodness, what do I think? I'm going to undo that habit in two months of sitting? And rather than fixing myself, 
just bringing tremendous sense of forgiveness and kindness to the task that I was attempting. It shifted the whole thing, and I was so grateful that I gave up the slow walking for that kind of an understanding. It's powerful to have an understanding of how deep the conditioning is. That's where forgiveness can, can show itself. And to see that you don't have to identify with all of those thoughts. They're just coming and going, coming and going, and they're deeply ingrained. When we don't react or blame ourselves for having them, they're gone. Or they're another aspect of the human condition that we can open up to with compassion. As can bring forgiveness to yourself, little by little, it starts to transfer it to others. As you're sitting here, notice the relationship you had with your problems today, your ache in your shoulder. How did you relate to that? With anger? Were you angry at your shoulder? Angry at your back? Angry at your knees? Or could there be some sense of kindness and appreciation for the fact that they're doing the best they can. That's where you stash your stuff. If you can relate to those weak areas with kindness and compassion, you'll be developing a whole different understanding and willingness to open up. How did you relate to your mind? Was it with anger, frustration, did you think you were the only one that was thinking? Mm -mm. But if you can bring again and again a sense of forgiveness to it and understanding that that's part of the human predicament, then as you explore this, you can see how other people get caught up in their minds. Oh, just caught up in that thought. Or you can see how frightening or frustrating it is when somebody's body is not cooperating or is sick, or is dying. And that's where compassion comes in. Because you've touched it within yourself, there's a bit more of a capacity to open up when you're encountering it in someone else. If you're afraid to touch it within yourself, then you'll probably be recoiling and not wanting to, to brush up against it in, in others. And there's a a beautiful passage I just came across. Uh, this is from the, the new issue of Karuna, which is uh, a journal that Kristen edits in Vancouver. It's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful publication. And there's going to be some copies available at the end of the retreat. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, who says, When you grow lettuce, and the lettuce does not grow the way you want, you never blame the lettuce. You're intelligent enough to see that the lettuce is like that because perhaps you do not know enough about growing it. Maybe you've given it too much fertilizer. Maybe you've not prepared the soil well. You look into the present situation of the lettuce and you see the roots of the lettuce. You do not blame the lettuce. You do not say, you do not respond to my expectations. You are nasty. You are not kind to me. We are all capable of dealing with lettuce, but not with humans. <laughs> but what we find out is that humans are not very different from lettuce. You are a vegetable. 
They are conditioned by elements, by their roots. They need the proper kind of love and care and understanding in order to grow beautifully, just like the lettuce. If they don't grow well, they're not fresh, they're not beautiful. So the more artful way is to consider us as responsible, perhaps, for the other person and stop blaming the other person because we know very well that blaming and arguing does not lead anywhere. It's very useless. It can only create a gap which deepens between us and the person and says, and, and instead perhaps say, you are like that, you are like that because I am like this. I have not made a correct effort to help you. You are my lettuce. Seeing that people are the way they are because of conditions. So without the blaming and with the forgiveness, if you have difficulty forgiving others, then to forgive yourself for that, to have some wedge of openness and, and kindness with the process. Some other qualities that also facilitate this opening, in addition to the forgiveness, one that's tremendously helpful is keeping a sense of humor. If you don't have a sense of humor, this is going to get very grim very soon. <laughs> but rather than being the butt of the joke, you can be in on it. Wow, isn't the mind amazing? Wow, isn't the body amazing? And that humor brings a spirit of lightness to what you're observing. You know, I suggested the, the half-smile uh, that Thich Nhat Hanh mentions. It's very helpful. Sometimes on retreat, I'll go through this dialogue with myself. You know, if I'm really getting caught, you, know, you said you'd smile. Yeah, but I don't feel like smiling. I just feel like being really rotten and miserable. You said you'd smile. All right, already, I'll get it over with and just kind of, I'll curl my lips up and it'll feel so silly that in a moment, the melodrama dissolves. On extreme cases, I'll go into a bathroom and give myself a big toothy grin. <clears throat> just try it, it, it works. One retreat, another long course, I was working with some music playing in my mind. <clears throat> As you might find, uh, some people have this. I've got a jukebox going inside my mind a lot. It's a consequence of being uh, turning on the radio when I get into the car or just, uh, I always, I've loved music since I was, as long as I've been around and love to sing. These songs pop up from time to time. I don't want to program you too much because then you'll, you might be dwelling on one for the next two days. But <laughs> This one retreat, this song came on the, uh, the jukebox and it was a very depressing song. <laughs> it was a Bob Dylan song from his most depressing period. Uh, <clears throat> I was a big Bob Dylan fan and if you're familiar with Bob Dylan, you might know the song Visions of Johanna. Yeah. It goes, you, you can see why the, sometimes the songs come on the track because they're relating to your experience. And 
this, the words went, ain't it just like the night to play tricks when we're trying to be so quiet? And the next line is, we're sitting here stranded, though we're all doing our best to deny it. <laughs> and this went on and on and on for one week straight. <laughs> this is true. Magically, after a week, the needle skipped to the second verse. <laughs> and the second verse starts off, Oh, little boy lost, he takes himself so seriously. And it was like the sky opened up. I was getting so tight, so heavy, just as this kept on playing and it just get, oh, taking things kind of seriously, aren't you? It was incredibly freeing. That same retreat, I had another jukebox uh, song that came on. It was just the reverse. It was this, this gift, not the reverse, but it was a, a gift from the beginning. The uh, Eagle song, Take It Easy, says, Take it easy, don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. And especially the line, lighten up while you still can. That became my mantra for the retreat. Lighten up while you still can. Don't even try to understand. Just again and again. Oh, yeah. If you can bring a sense of humor and lightness to the process, it opens you. Particularly, it's helpful to have humor around the judging mind, because this is where most of us get into problems. You, know, you say, yeah, try not to judge. You know, oh, judging. You know, I was judging again. Oh, I was there's another judgment. And you just kind of heap one layer on top of another, on top of another, and you're mired in judgment. One experience on, on a retreat where I decided to, uh, to play a game with the judgments. Another line from uh, the Third Zen Patriarch, which is a beautiful piece of, of Dharma <coughs> wisdom. It says, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. All right, that made sense to me, yeah. So every time I saw a judging thought, I would just tack on the line, the burdensome practice of judging. You know, that would be enough of a reminder to not identify with it and just see, oh, there's a judging thought. I'd go into the dining room, especially. That's the, that's the time for you know, judgments to run rampant because this, it's a social situation. There's other people around to, to check out, even though you're not looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> and there I'd be, you know, She's going for a third helping. The burdens of practice of judging. You know. Or, what a klutz he is. The burdens of practice of judging. I'm so mindful, I hope people notice. The burdens of practice of judging. I'd go through meals 50, 75 times saying this. You know, in one meal. And those are the ones that I caught. Who knows how many I, I didn't. And after a while, it became humorous. You know, just to see how pervasive that judging mind is. And I started to get some kind of a, an inkling that I wasn't in it by myself. That it's the way the mind works. 
It's very freeing when you can be humorous around the judgment. Another exercise that you might try is counting the judgments. You know, just take an afternoon you know, or an hour you know, or 10 minutes. You know, and just notice, oh, I'm doing pretty well, 37. You know. oh, there was another judgment, darn it, 38. After a while, you start to lighten up about it. So, if you can, when you're finding yourself get, getting quite serious, bring some ease and some lightness to it, in and, and whatever way you can. Forgiveness, humor. Third quality that I encourage you to keep in mind as we're going through the weekend, particularly on uh, the... Um, the amount of time that a weekend um, provides is the quality of patience. I mentioned in groups to a, couple, to a couple of groups that it usually takes about three or four days to settle in to the point where there are stretches of mindfulness. It's actually possible. It, it really does happen that you can be mindful a few breaths at a time and start to uh, to get more in touch in many ways. And it deepens and deepens. It's actually possible to get quite concentrated and focused. But on a weekend, you don't <coughs> usually get to that. And as I mentioned, I've been trying to figure out for years how to start a weekend on the fourth day, but it, you just can't get around it. A weekend provides the opportunity to practice patience because you are dealing with all the uh, the difficulties that anyone starting out on a 10-day or a three-month retreat would, would have. But it has a cycle of its own, so I, I want to put out that it's quite powerful and profound. It has a beginning, a settling-in period, and an end as well. So don't think that uh, you're just in for misery, um, but allow that possibility to happen. <laughs> But the quality of patience is one that allows for what's happening to be as it is. Not waiting out, you know, kind of drumming your fingers, I'll wait out for the good stuff. You know, he said that everything would pass. You know. That doesn't help at all. That's not patience. That's kind of grim determination and, and tolerating, grinning and bear it. But the patience is one that says, okay, this is okay. Right here, right now, I can wake up. Reality is giving me something to, to grow in my understanding. First time I did a long retreat, a three-month course, just about this patience, by the fourth day, I was saying to myself, 11 weeks, two days, 10 hours and 20 minutes left. I'll never make it. And I was getting really a little anxious about it. Luckily that night, one of the teachers gave a talk on patience. And what I did was, every time I'd see myself toppling forward and counting the weeks and the days, I use it as a signal to settle back. Oh, what's happening right now? Because there's always something that's happening right now. You've got a show in front of you anytime you want to tune into it. If you can move from that off-balance toppling forward to, ah, 
what's happening right now and allow yourself to open up to it. What you often find is it's not nearly as frightening as the mind thinks it is. Fear is about the next moment. Okay, this is pretty hard, but what about five minutes from now? Then I won't be able to handle it. There's refuge in the present moment when you can settle back and simply be with this one as it is. One way to, to work with patience and settling into this moment is chunking your experience when, you've had, uh, when you're in the middle of, say, a hard sensation that you're working with or a difficult emotion. As I mentioned um, to some groups and perhaps to the, to the whole group, if you've got a, a hard, uh, an unpleasant sensation, make a little contract with yourself. Okay, for this next minute, let me feel it fully. And then after that time, you can come back and feel the breath or do what you need to do. But just for this minute, to have the willingness to open up to it and let yourself explore it. What often is found is that when you're not putting on that agenda of control and aversion, that it's really quite okay. It might be unpleasant, but that's okay. It's quite bearable, much more so than we thought. So patience. It's said that the spiritual journey requires a cup of wisdom, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. It makes sense because that patience allows us to go through all the times when the love and the wisdom isn't there and allows us to contact those different parts of ourselves that we don't want to open up to. It's not like you can just pull the love out and the compassion out. Oh, I'll have a little love today. It doesn't work. And this is a process of opening ourselves up, our hearts, our bodies, our minds. And in that opening, having the whole show emerge. The fears, the pains, the sadnesses, the joy, the beauty in our willingness to allow for all of it to come out, then all the stuff that you're trying to contact has a chance to emerge. So, patience, sense of humor, forgiveness, and patience. Another quality that we started to introduce uh, this afternoon is that of loving-kindness. And it's a tricky thing when uh, sometimes you hear a guided meditation, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, and you just feel like stone. And so, don't think that the idea of loving kindness is that you're supposed to be warm and gushy and, and juicy, and if you can't get there, you know, you're somehow an insensitive, cold human being. Because we all have our own ways of getting access to that, and sometimes it doesn't work as much as we'd like, as much as you'd like to be loving. That's the start of it. I have an intention. I really want to open my heart. Whether or not you do in a particular moment is not really under your control. If you have the intention, and that's the direction that you're wanting to focus your development on, 
that will carry you through to discover ways to do that. But rather than focusing on the love, it can be much more useful to focus on the kindness part. Because that's a bit more accessible. Just a quality of basic kindness to yourself and to somebody else. Kindness not only for the wonderful things that you, you are, so you deserve kindness, but kindness and metta for the difficult things. Precisely that's, those are the, the parts of yourself that need the kindness, that need the caring, that need the compassion. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, who's a, a wonderful monk, American monk um, who studied in Thailand, has centers in England and uh, other parts of the world, talking about metta or loving kindness. He says, sometimes there are things one doesn't like about oneself, but metta means not being caught up in the thoughts we have, the attitudes, the problems, the thoughts and the feelings of the mind. So it becomes an immediate practice of being very mindful. To be mindful means to have metta towards the fear in your mind or the anger or the jealousy. Metta or loving kindness means not creating problems around existing conditions, allowing them to fade away on their own, to cease. You don't have to, fit, to pretend to feel approval towards your faults. You don't think, I like my faults. Some people are foolish enough to say, my faults make me interesting. I'm a fascinating personality because of my weaknesses. Metta is not conditioning yourself to believe that you like something that you don't like at all. It's just not dwelling in aversion. And with that not dwelling, there is the capacity for compassion for that conditioning of mind. One way that I uh, use from time to time when it's really hard to accept something in myself is just seeing that there's a little child in me. It's in all of us, and I do this in interviews sometimes with people when they're really hard on, us, on themselves. 90%, I'd say, of the problem is one of self-acceptance in practice. And then after you get through that hurdle, uh, it, comes, it comes back as a challenge, but it just changes the whole practice when you see that, yes, you have a perfect right to feel okay about yourself. But if you can get in touch with the fact that you're just a little boy or a little girl in there, in a big body, and the fears and the angers, frustrations that you have now are not very different from when you were three or four or five. And if you saw a little child having those fears or angers or uh, inappropriate behavior, what seems like inappropriate behavior, and you see the pain and the confusion, you would respond with compassion. You'd probably want to go and put your arm around them and say, hey, it's okay hey, all you need is a little bit of love. 
we respond much better when we have that energy coming towards us than, well, when are you going to get yourself together? And so not only are you um, being kind to yourself, but you are serving your own development by practicing metta with your, um, with your faults, with your weaknesses. What was there today that you saw that was difficult to touch? Confusion? Aches in your body? Frustration? Emotions? Can you bring a little bit of kindness to that? And see, that's part of being human. That's part of being alive. All of these things are pointing to an acceptance and an okayness with the moment, a real compassion for your experience. And there's one other aspect of practice that develops that openness, and that is the mindfulness itself. As we're mindful of the ways we contract, of the barriers that we put up, then we can learn learn another way. Until we see the patterns, we're caught in them. But each time we open up little by little and seeing, oh yes, that's what happens. No judgment there, but simply an understanding. Then we can relate to ourselves in a different way. Not necessarily that those patterns will change or change overnight, but more of a sense of not battling them and waking up and growing as we explore. There's a, a beautiful passage that I, I read about this, if it's here, that beautifully illustrates this process of learning as we are more mindful of, uh, of all the parts of ourselves. This is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It's by a, a woman named Portia Nelson. She says, chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) It takes a while, but you learn little by little. And what we're doing here is working and living in chapter three. Yeah, you fall in. You know where you are. 
oh yes, I fell in again. And when the line goes, it isn't my fault, it is my fault, that's not to say that you need to blame yourself for it. It's simply to say that you've got a choice. You can either fall in or stay in and blame yourself and just fall into the next pothole that's right nearby by blaming yourself. Or you can just get up and say, oh, there's another way. And so what we're doing here as we're being mindful is bringing that capacity to open up to all of our experience and wake up and grow from it. So, these are these qualities that all have to do with compassion. And compassion is an essential element, especially starting practice. Compassion leads to wisdom. If you can create a space to understand a willingness to explore, then you can see things much more clearly. And wisdom leads to compassion. Because the more you understand, the more you see that you don't have to identify with your experience, the more you see that there's many, many different parts to being alive. And there's many, many ways that we can extricate ourselves from from our shortcomings in just a moment of wisdom, the more you have compassion for the predicament that we're all in. So, forgiveness humor, patience, loving-kindness, and the mindfulness itself that allows us to explore and open, all are deeply developing this quality of compassion. It might not seem like much when you're just noticing one breath in and out. Big deal. It's a very, very big deal. It's a very, very big deal when you can feel what's going on without reacting or getting frustrated by it, when you can bring a spirit of kindness and openness and spaciousness to it. So I encourage you to to keep that spirit as we go through the weekend together. So we we have a few moments if there's any questions either about the talk or anything that's come up from the day can try to address them. Yeah. One thing that you can become aware of, first of all, as far as the need for spaciousness, is getting a sense of contraction in your body. If your body is starting to get really tight and your mind is starting to, f- to feel tight and agitated and the walls seem like they're closing in on you, that's a clue. Time to get some space. Okay. It can take lots of different um, forms. It might mean in the middle of a, of a sitting, if you find that you're struggling, this is, it's good to check in on this every now and then, and I, I, I mentioned this a couple of times during the instructions, let go of any struggling or straining 
to make anything happen. If you feel like you're trying really hard, you know, I'll watch this breath, of, it kills me, you know, lighten up a bit. You know, just soften, allow your body to soften, allow yourself to take a few deeper breaths. If it's very confusing, you might open your eyes for a few moments and get grounded in that way. When you're doing the walking, don't do the slow walking if you're feeling very tight. Often what happens is the, the breath starts to get cut off uh, and it's just uh, a constraint in, in the process. Go for a more relaxed walk, you know, a more natural paced walk. At times that will be very appropriate. <clears throat> On one, one retreat I was walking for, uh, doing the slow walking and hadn't gotten out of the building for about five weeks and just kind of doing it and doing it. And I, it was going quite, quite well for, uh, for most of that time. And then towards the end of that time, it was getting very, very tight. And this went on for a few days. Just, I was doing it just the way I had been for the previous time, but it was just, I felt so confined. And finally, after a few days, I said, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to go for a walk outside and I'm going to not be mindful. I'm going to forget all of this stuff and just enjoy myself. Okay? And I put on my boots and my coat. It was snowing out and I got, was really excited. You know, God, I'm going to go out and feel snow and not be mindful. <laughs> and I started to take this natural paced walk when I stopped trying to be mindful, it was amazing. Left, right, left, right, hearing, sniffling, thinking, hearing, thinking, left, right. One moment after another, it was one of the most mindful walks I've ever had in my life. Just 45 minutes, I was you know, really high. Not that you want to make yourself get really high, but it, it pointed the... Um, and made the point of letting go of what you think is the proper effort to create some space. And then you sometimes find that the momentum of mindfulness is there even though you didn't realize it was. You know? Sometimes it might be taking a, a shower to change the energy if you're really feeling you know, like you've just been with it, and hard, hard. Just doing something to nurture yourself or taking a bath if, the, if there's one around. Um, but a little bit of nurturing in whatever way you find uh, appropriate might be just what you need. There's a caution with that, though, because you can easily slip over into the other side. You know, just, hey, I'll just use this as a nurturing retreat, you know, and, and lay back. And so you've got to be really honest with yourself and see what will help you be most in balance. And if you feel like you're kind of tight, then do something softening and nurturing. If you feel like you've been kind of lazy or sloppy, that's the time to bring about that care and attention that, that you might have had a little while before. How much um, walking and sitting meditation would you suggest for someone who really wants to open this up? Daily? <clears throat> if you're doing a daily sitting practice, that's, that's pretty good. 
If you want to do the walking in addition, it'll be wonderful. But I wouldn't want to prescribe a formula of you should be doing this much walking and this much sitting. It's hard enough to just make the, make the sitting commitment. If you're quite serious about it and want to throw yourself into it, if you're sitting twice a day and you do, and say you're sitting for 45 minutes or an hour at a time, and you do five or 10 minutes of walking with that, you'll, you'll really be feeling the, uh, the power of the practice. Yeah, I've lost uh, two lines from the Bob Dylan vision. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were they the first two? The good ones? Or the, <laughs> the first two lines I mentioned before, little boy, lost, taking off so seriously. You want to get the first two? <laughs> Ain't it just like the night to play tricks when we're trying to be so quiet? We're sitting here stranded that we're all doing our best to deny it. <laughs> Don't take it seriously. You're not sitting here stranded. It's a very incredibly uh, special opportunity that you have, that most people, even who have a, um, a desire to practice, don't have the opportunity or the time or the, uh, the possibility. So I really hope you appreciate it and take advantage of it don't need to make anything happen. Simply um, give yourself over to the power of mindfulness and notice and know, know that every single moment that you're mindful counts. One breath, every single step that you take that you're aware of, even if it's just a few on this weekend, you are undercutting the habits of grasping and aversion and confusion and developing a whole other way of relating, of not identifying and allowing and opening. It's very, very powerful. So um, I, I honor the work that you're putting in and um, hope that you do make use of this time. Let's sit for just a few moments before we do the walk. This talk was given by James Barras at Insight Meditation Society on May 26, 1990. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.